Urine contains many dissolved minerals and salts. When your urine has high levels of these minerals and salts, you can actually form stones. Kidney stones can start small, but can grow quite large in size. Welcome to the GW Medical Faculty Associates Podcast. I'm Dr. Mike Smith, and today's topic, understanding kidney stones. My guest is Dr. Patrick Mufarij. Dr. Mufarij is a urologist and assistant professor with the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Dr. Mufarij, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start off, um, can you explain to us exactly what kidney stones are? Absolutely. So kidney stones are essentially concretions or crystals that form in the urine, similar to how snowflakes form during a snowstorm. Uh, stones form crystals first, which then coalesce together to form larger stones. And it's simply a matter of um, saturation or how concentrated the urine is. If someone drinks a lot of fluids, makes a lot of urine, and the urine is dilute, then these crystals will not form. Similarly, if you threw a handful of salt into a swimming pool, it would just dissolve. However, if someone does not make a lot of urine, then these crystals will form very, uh, very likely to form, okay. similarly to throwing a handful of salt into a little cup. So it's, there's a lot of crystallization processes involved, but also one of the main driving forces is the concentration. So when you say that, so who's at risk then? Uh, why would somebody's urine be so concentrated? Well, a lot of it is determined based on the environment that people live in, their genetics, and then um, potentially the anatomy of their kidneys. So for instance, if someone has uh, several relatives that have had kidney stones, there's likely some genetic predisposition for them to, to form stones. Environment also plays a role in the sense that we know that in southern states or states in which there is more heat, stones form more, more commonly. And this is presumed to be due to the fact that there's just um, the temperature itself causes people to sweat. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the anatomy, some people do have aberrant drainage systems of their kidneys. And if the kidney is not draining briskly, the stagnation of urine can cause the formation of stones. Right. Now, most people, if they have some sort of, uh, you know, kidney anomaly, some sort of deformity, most people know about that. Or, or are there some people who develop stones and that's when you discover that there was an abnormal, abnormal kidney? Without question, we see so many patients whose first stone event elucidates the fact they have some sort of abnormality of their kidney. Yeah. Um, th that being said, there's also several patients who we take care of who have known issues with their kidney, and we keep an eye on them so that they don't form kidney stones. But it's very common for people to present with their first stone event, and then after a yeah. workup, oh. we identify the reasons, and one of them could be that their kidney is a little bit different. So, so genetics, environment, and maybe uh, an abnormal kidney are, are the, the primary risk factors for developing stones. When somebody does develop a stone, uh, are there always symptoms? And if there are symptoms, what are they? So not always are there symptoms. It uh, depends on the location of the stone. Most stones that pass into the ureter, which is the small tube that connects the kidney to the bladder, 
most of those stones will result in immediate symptoms. And patients describe this situation as probably the worst pain of their life. Women will say it's worse, worse than childbirth, and men will say it's worse than anything they've ever had. Um, stones, however, can also lay in the kidney itself, which is a, a larger space than the ureter. And a lot of times these stones in the kidneys don't cause the agonizing pain that the stones in the ureters do simply because there's just more space to float around. Now, sometimes patients will, will say, you know, I have a vague pain in my flank and you end up finding they have a small stone in their kidney. That's not uncommon. But when you talk about the classic kidney stone pain, it's, it's always when the stone's in the ureter. Now, if you come across somebody that had maybe some of that dull pain on their side towards the back and, and you do an ultrasound, I think that's usually uh, a common procedure, yeah, right? Usually, so you do an ultrasound. Absolutely. Yeah. And you and you see the stone there. What what do you do at that point? If it, Does it depend on if they're it, what the pain is like? Are you always going to treat that? What would be your approach to finding a kidney stone? So without question, if someone has symptoms, vague symptoms, and they're not in agonizing pain, then you can certainly start with an ultrasound, which is non-radiating and pretty, pretty easy and inexpensive to perform, which gives you some general information. If you've identified that there is a suggestion of a stone, then oftentimes the next step would be getting a CAT scan so that you can understand distinctly and definitively how much stone, where the stone is. Um, a CAT scan without contrast is a... A, a radiating source of imaging, but it's also the most perfect imaging to understand kidney stones um, in the human body. Um, and in terms of whether or not you treat stones, definitely it depends on symptoms. If patients are experiencing symptoms that are incompatible with their quality of life desires, then absolutely you would offer them a surgical procedure. If their kidney is obstructed, if they're developing infection at the same time, these are all reasons to intervene before things get worse. Now, a lot of times we detect stones that are simply discovered accidentally or discovered and are not causing severe problems at all. Um, in these scenarios, we, um, we basically tell the patient that they could elect for treatment of this uh, stone or these stones before they become a problem, or most, more often than not, what we do is we perform a metabolic evaluation first to understand the mechanisms that cause their stones to, to form. And once we have a handle on what's causing their stones to form, we, you know, make recommendations dietarily or we uh, add medicines or vitamins to their, to their diet, mitigate those risk factors, and then we offer them stone removal at that time. But we also have a lot of patients who just don't want surgery unless they absolutely need it, which is reasonable. And for those patients, we survey their stones by getting an ultrasound or an x-ray um, in order to understand if it's growing any larger or if any new stones are forming. You mentioned uh, diet there uh, in, in your explanation that in some people, you know, maybe they, maybe there is a stone, maybe the pain is not so bad. If, in that case, what are those dietary suggestions that you make to make sure that stone doesn't get any better, bigger, or, or more sto stones form? Well, first and foremost, um, it's all uh, the, likely the biggest uh, risk factor for stone formation is the amount of urine that someone makes, meaning if you're dehydrated, crystals will form. Um, in business, we have a saying that the solution to pollution is dilution. So you need to dilute the urine <laughs> by drinking more fluid. And people always ask what kind of fluid. Mostly 
anything except for a couple. There's a couple fluids that are a little bit dangerous for kidney stones. One of them is is a tea. Um, most teas, except for green tea and herbal teas, um, most teas have a fair amount of oxalate. So, you know, drinking a gallon of sweet iced tea a day or drinking a lot of tea um, a day is definitely something that can increase the amount of oxalate in someone's urine. And I'll get to oxalate in a second because when you talk about diet and kidney stones in America, there has to be a conversation about oxalate, which is not something people have heard a lot of unless you've had right, it. Okay. So first and foremost is the amount of fluid you take in. And as I mentioned, tea is something you don't want to drink a lot of, but alcohol, coffee is totally fine in moderation. The other uh, group of drinks that you want to avoid are those with high fructose corn syrup because there is some evidence that that can increase the amount of calcium that enters your kidney when you drink those frequently. And also they're, they're, they're unhealthy, generally speaking. But aside okay. from those, you can drink, um, you know, water, water with lemon. A lot of people like adding lemon or citrus to their, um, to their fluids because citrate, which comes from citrus fruits, is a natural inhibitor of stone formation. So you see a lot of people that may be drinking lemonade or adding lemon or lime to their fluids. That's the reason. And in terms of the other things dietarily, um, getting back to oxalate, oxalate is something that is, uh, it's a substance that is present in almost every fruit and vegetable. And in America, we consume, um, oxalate in large quantities because spinach, nuts, beets, rhubarb, bran, Swiss chard, dark chocolate, these are things that have very high quantities of oxalate in a single serving. And, it, you know, these are the substances that I listed are very common food choices that we make in this country. Um, so oxalate is one of the main driving forces of stone formation in this country because 80% of stones in this country are calcium oxalate. Um, so when you eat a lot of oxalate foods, that puts you at increased risk of oxalate entering your kidney where it can complex with calcium. Um, and the distinction here is that calcium is always present in your kidney because the body um, does not use all the calcium that, 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 that that's in the bloodstream. It sends a lot of it to the urine to be disposed of. But oxalate is something that can be present in very small quantities in the urine unless you eat a lot of it or have some sort of condition that makes it increased. So that's, that's really the okay. um, rate-limiting step in calcium oxalate crystal formation is the oxalate. Okay. So, so hydrate... And we have to watch some of those foods you listed. If you're eating a lot of this, you know, a lot of people eat spinach, right? You know, that's a that's a big one. So I, I don't think a lot of people know that that is high in oxalate. And right. You're that, at risk without, for stones. Yeah, without question. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, I, and I was just going to say, so a lot of people I don't think realize um, some of those oxalate foods. So we need to hydrate. We need to watch our intake of the of the oxalates if we're gonna if we're gonna handle in a dietary sense the development of stones. If do you find this to 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 work? If you have somebody with a small stone, the pain seems to be controlled. You get them to hydrate. You you decrease their intake of oxalates. Does that, in your experience, work? It does work for a lot of patients that are able to maintain the regimen that we recommend. Um, the uh, there's there's several other dietary factors involved, which may be beyond the scope of this podcast. Um, but one of the one of the things I wanted to mention is the urban myth that calcium should be avoided in the diet. Um, and for years, people would tell stone formers that they should avoid calcium. And what ended up happening is these people would literally avoid eating anything with calcium or dairy products or cheese. And the problem that that 
um, created was, and this was demonstrated in a very elegant study out of Italy, the problem that that created was that without calcium in your intestinal tract, even small amounts of oxalate that are consumed would enter the kidney because there would be no calcium to bind the oxalate in the intestinal tract. Ah, so gotcha. calcium yeah. and oxalate can obviously bind anywhere, and you want them to bind in the intestinal tract. Um, so, and that makes sense. So that way um, you're getting you're eliminating the oxalate in, in, in out your digestive system, avoiding the kidney altogether. So you do want to take in correct. some calcium then. Yes, absolutely, and it's recommended to take three or four calcium calcium dietary calcium sources a day, meaning from food, not from supplements. Um, and that's about 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day, which is what's recommended. But to get back to yeah. your question, um, you know, if you, if you give people the dietary modifications, the general advice given to all stone patients, um, assuming they have a run-of-the-mill calcium oxalate stone, most of these people will be fine and will be able to control um, their disease to some extent. I will tell you this, though. Stone recurrence rates are up to 80% after 10 years of the first stone event. So if you have a stone attack today, Within 10 years, you're likely to have another stone attack if you do nothing different. Um, so right, it's okay. important to make whatever interventions as a patient that you do to make those durable interventions because this is something that clearly, if you made a stone in the first place, this is something that can come back. And they often right. do because people often forget about um, you know, the pain that, that, that occurred with the stone or just simply get um, potentially uh, lose... Uh, lose sight of the importance of maintaining these as dietary life, lifelong lessons. Now, right. the other aspect of, of the, uh, the regimen, uh, sort of the advice to help prevent stones is the metabolic workup, which I touched on earlier. And this simply is just a, a term we use for getting special blood tests and having patients um, do special urinary tests because um, a lot of times people will have unknown risk factors for stones that would only be identified if they do the metabolic testing. Um, and so for most patients that, that we see that, that want a thorough understanding of their stone risk, they do go ahead and do the blood work and the urine testing. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so I think that's great. So, uh, we have hydration. We have some, some dietary suggestions you gave us, a metabolic workup. Uh, the good news is if we do follow these things, I think you're saying that th this is something that can be, uh, controlled and prevented down the line. Dr. Bufarage, let's, let's end with this. Um, why don't you tell us, what you would like my audience to know about kidney stones? Well, kidney stones have been around since um, the earliest times. It's, uh, it's mentioned in the Hippocratic Oath that we as doctors take. Um, and when you look at the, the rates of kidney stones in this country, um, we're talking about nearly 10% of the population has had a kidney stone or will have a kidney stone. So with that amount people having kidney stones with that prevalence rate plus the risk of recurrence of these um, stones, it's, uh, it's a very significant health, health problem from a socioeconomic standpoint. And so I think for those patients that are at risk of kidney stones, um, they uh, obviously don't want to have another one again because they're uncomfortable, but they should find hope in knowing that this is one disease that you can certainly control if you're willing right. to understand some basic physiologic principles of your body and if you're willing to be as good as you can be regarding your stone prevention regimen. Gotcha. Dr. Mufarge, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing and also thank you for coming on the show today. You're listening to GW Medical Faculty Associates Podcast. 
For more information, go to gwdocs.com. That's gwdocs.com. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.